Kwame Alexander, and this is a podcast based on a memoir that I wrote. Not like a traditional memoir where I gathered together all the things that made a life out of me. Not me opening a door to my childhood so that I can understand my fate as a man, as a father, as a son. It's just a collection of snapshots of a man learning to love again and wanting to share everything he's learned about love, which it turns out ain't a whole lot, (laughs) with his two daughters. This podcast is a poet grappling with loss and longing. With questions he's been too afraid to ask his own father. So I've asked some fathers to help me, to share their stories, to help me, as it were, cook up some strategies on being a better dad. And today's guest is a James Beard award-winning educator and author of six books who has worked tirelessly for over two decades to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Four Color Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House and 10 Speed Press. His sixth book, Black Food, which I got in this beautiful, was the most critically acclaimed American cookbook published in 2021. Now, all that's great, but the thing that really matters, y'all, is he's the father of two girls. Oh, yeah, it's going down today with Bryant Terry on Why Fathers Cry, the podcast. Let's get it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What's happening, Bryant? What's up, brother? How are you? I'm good. Again, with the fly eyewear. I always <laughs> love it. I always love it. Trying to be like you. You're like the um, the eyewear king of this literary game out here. So <laughs> I have 24 pair. It's, it's my thing. I'm it's my up. thing. <laughs> so I got a story, um, but I want to hear yours first. What, what is this? tiger dad thing to you what happened tell me about it you know i no longer claim being a tiger dad i have to admit um with a lot of work that i've done with my therapy i realized that a lot of those tiger dad impulses actually were trauma responses um from you know the kind of strict upbringing that i had the high expectations that my family had for me and also the trauma of being ambitious, smart black boy growing up in the South. Right. And all the things that I had to contend with. Um, you know, the, the 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 real pivotal moment for me as a young person was when I was going to one of the most uh, racially and ethnically diverse private schools in Memphis from K through five. And in sixth grade, my parents transferred me to a uh, private school in which I was the only black male in my class from sixth grade up until eighth grade. And then um, my um, buddy, Arshan Jacobs, moved from Pensacola, Florida, and he saved me. You know, all that to say is that it was all out of love. It was all out of uh, understanding of the expectations, the challenges that are put, that Black people have to endure in this country. And um, the misogynoir that Black girls have to endure, understanding all these things and just wanting my oldest girl, Mila, to be excellent and to be, you know, flawless in my mind. And I know that's unattainable. But you're a dad and it's what we feel for them. It is. And, you know, the thing is, I have to even forgive myself um, when I think about some of the moments where I was like, oh, you know, I was hardcore. I could have been a little more easy or maybe we didn't have to start her cello when she was three years old or, or whatever regrets I might have. 
And I, I, I look at them as rookie mistakes. And I understand that, you know, this is something and you're just talking to different dads and, you know, whether it's a boy or girl, I think there's this kind of way in which first time parents, they want to get it all right. And they want the kid to be the best they can be. And they want to mm. like do everything by the rule book and reading, you know, different like studies and scholars and just trying to make this happen. So I, I, I've gotten over kind of beating myself up when I would kind of think about times and I'm like, man, I could have just like chilled out. So I'm just glad that, you know, it's, it's life and I embrace all the moments, whether they're good, bad, whether I regret them or not, and just know that sure. it's all helping me and my family grow. And so it's all good, ultimately. Well, I am I wish I was there, you know, in terms of forgiving myself, like, because I no longer claim it either. But my kid was six years old and she's really tall. You know, I'm six, four. So she's she was really tall as a six year old. She was the biggest kid on her basketball team. And they're playing a big game and it's the fourth quarter and she asked to be taken out the game. And I'm like, no, get back in the game. So she goes back in and she's playing sort of, you know, lackadaisical. She's not really into it. And her team still wins. And so after the game, she's all excited. She's like, dad, dad, I won. I won. And I'm like, yeah, but you ain't play hard. You ain't block no shots. You ain't run up and down the court. And I'm getting upset. And my six-year-old just starts bawling. She just starts crying. And I'm like, you got to put in that effort. And her mother comes and gets her and, and, and takes her to, to ballet practice or, or what have you, or violin practice, wherever she was headed. And in the next game, her team lost, but she scored every point. And she, she played hard and made the all-star team. And I thought I had done something, Bryant. And, you know, I'm, it, it just makes me sad to think about it, but she's 14 now and six feet tall. And since 11 years old, she will not let me come to any games. Hmm. Yo. Damn. Right. <laughs> That's a that, lot to unpack. <laughs> yo, no. And I, I, I talked to her about it recently because I was like, why don't you let me come? No, nah, I'm good. And I said, well, I think it has something to do with what I did when you were six. And I've never said this, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry for putting that kind of pressure on you. And of course, she's like, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I just don't want y'all to come. But mm. I think it does. I think it does. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting that from my dad when I played tennis. We start these podcasts off, Bryant, with a poem. And I feel like I want to talk about how we learn to parent from watching our dads or what we learn from our dads, our relationships with our dads. And my dad never said, I love you, but this is a poem about, you know, me sort of hearing that um, or, or, or knowing that this guy was lovable. It's called the gospel truth. Mm. Kneeling in the musty attic, looking for our old record player inside cobwebbed milk crates filled with moldy textbooks, dissertations, and his old fiery sermons on cassette next to a green milk crate of expired passports and credit cards. I'm a junior in college, and I discovered jazz for the first time. Duke Ellington's heaven, nestled right between Nancy Wilson and Miles Davis, the three of them side by side, trumpeting a kind of sentimental wonder. It is up here in this sacred place where I find the melody to build a dream on, where I rejoice, where I realize that my father may not be all blues where I fall in love for the first time with my father. 
Mm. Well, first of all, I don't know if you know, I'm a jazz aficionado and I collect um, classic jazz on vinyl. So a lot of that was resonating with me. But I want to respond to um, something you said before you read the poem. And it's just about you apologizing to your daughter. Because one thing that I've really come to understand, and I knew it in an intellectual way, but over the past several years, for me, what I understand is one of the most powerful parenting tools that we have is modeling. You know, we can Mm -hmm. talk about what we want our children to do and we can direct them as much as possible through our words and, and, and other ways. But I think the most important way is modeling and embodying how we want them to show up in the world by showing, showing up as our best selves. And that's been one of the impetus for me to really, you know, just be the best person I can and to continue to evolve and do deep spiritual work and to figure out how I can shed many of these traumas and not just the personal traumas, but the generational traumas that right. I inherited. And um, when I hear that poem, you know, I think about the way in which, you know, as a younger person, I might have judged my parents for Mm -hmm. ways that I thought they should have been or I thought they should have showed up for me. Becoming a parent has helped me become so close with my parents. You know, my wife's always like, you talk to your parents every single day. And I do. And I love just staying connected to them. And it's helped me forgive them for things that I would be so critical of as a young Uh, knucklehead person just like, you know, having this judgment and these ideas about what they should be doing or how they should be parenting best. And now I know that they're just human beings. They're figuring out just like I am. And they were figuring out in their early 20s because my mom was 22 and my dad was 21 when they had me. And I could barely tie my shoes when I was 21 and 22. So just understanding the, the challenges that they had to endure, figuring out how to raise a family. That was a beautiful poem. And it just, it really evoked a lot. Thank you. You know, we learn how to parent, certainly from experience, but from watching our parents. We learn how to father from our fathers. Like, that's where it starts. Is there a core value that you learn from your pop, from your dad, that you apply in your parenting? Let me start here. I don't know if it's necessarily something I apply in my parenting, but Uh if we were to take this idea of modeling, then sure, I think it definitely applies in the way that I parent. Um, Just deep kindness and care for friends and community. And my dad has always been that person who's shown up for family members, his friends and community in that way. And not in a cliched way, you know, in a real genuine way. You know, when I talk to people, his, his friends and you know, relatives who knew him from, you know, since he was young, they just always talk about the kindness and the care that he always kind of embodied. I feel like that's one of my superpowers is staying in touch with, you know, connecting with people who I care about and who've been a part of my life. And I really want to cultivate that in my daughters because I want them to know that community is everything. You know, you could be the smartest, most uh, accomplished, most financially secure person. But if you don't have community around you, if you don't have like your formal and even informal kinship networks there to support you, to to love you, to show up for you, then you don't have a lot. And so I, I take that seriously. And it's not, I mean, and it takes work, you know, it's just like sometimes like, sure, I don't want to be spending, 
an hour and a half on the phone with my buddy who's going through a divorce, right. but I know he needs me. And mm. so I, I hope that they're absorbing all of that because I feel like that's one of the things that, um, one of the things I'm most proud of, of about who I am. And I know that um, that's inherited from my dad. Oh, that reminds me of growing up and every weekend, whether it was Sunday, we were at my father's mother's home, 30, 40 people. So you talk about community every Saturday night, we were at my mother's, mother's home, 30, 40 people, Saturday night. It was like one side of the family was partiers. The other side were churchgoers. But it was all this spirit of community. Mm -hmm. And I realized I got to spend so much time with my cousins. I hung with my cousins. We talked. We had real authentic conversations. And so that's one of the things that my daughter has not had the privilege of. You know, you living in the suburbs. You all, you ain't nobody like, you ain't with cousins and families and Extended family and, and you try to create that. And so when we moved back from London last year, I decided to start this thing called Jubilee Sunday dinner. Every first Sunday we have in a Sunday dinner, mm. you know, and all the friends and, and, and her friends and our, everybody's coming over. And so we got 17, 18 people in the house. Stephanie and I announced to our community that we are getting divorced and it was a hard thing to do. And, 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 and we talked about how, um, it's important that we maintain this, this family, you know, for our daughter, Samaya, that she still have this community. So when you said that, it just reminded me that I, I got this idea from my childhood and trying to bring that spirit of community because that's the thing that matters. Mm. I love that. I really love that you called in community in such a disruptive moment for you, your wife, mm. your, your your daughter, and did it publicly. I mean, I, I, I hear that. And I think my when I think about my kind of impulses and how private I am, I'm just like, I don't know if people would know we were divorced until like three years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but um, I, I, I especially over the past two years with the disruption of COVID and shelter in place and how communities have been so fractured, I, I think you're hitting a nail on the head. We have to almost overcorrect and engineer these type of spaces where we can be together and show up for each other and love each other. Because even hearing you say that, I'm like, I feel like we need to bring that type of energy to um, our community. Like just having like a standing thing. And it don't have to be every once a month, but even if it's like once a quarter, like, yo, we want to bring people together. We have to repair what the past couple years have done to, you know, just these kind of like ways of interacting that we we have to do. It's this human, it's a part of the way that we've survived. It's a part of the way that we we need to just show up for each other. So I'm biting that idea. <laughs> well, you know, originally the plan was to do it every Sunday because that's what my grandmother did. And I still don't understand how she cooked for 40 people and still was the head of the usher board in church. So like, when did you, were you up at 2 a.m.? I don't know how she did it. And so, so I originally was going to do it once a month. That was my plan. And then I had the first one and I cooked, uh, I cooked fried chicken. I know you're a vegan, but you just going to have to hear this. I cooked fried chicken. <laughs> I cook yeast, uh, dinner rolls. Ooh. Yeah. I cook collard greens. I cook lobster mac and cheese. Damn. I did a, I did a jollof Caesar salad, which is like a Caesar salad with shrimp, but seasoned with jollof, like Ghanaian seasonings. And so I made, I made seven or eight dishes and a, and a lemon pound cake. 
I was tired, man. I was like, I am, I am not doing this every Sunday. <laughs> we will be right back. I've been to thousands of bookstores all over the country, but one of my all-time favorites is Brain Lair Books. This is the crown jewel of bookstores, y'all. Nestled in South Bend, Indiana, owned and operated by the amazing and wonderful and indefatigable Kathy Burnett. And I'm not just saying that because she carries my new memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. Kathy knows books. She was a school librarian and teacher for 16 years before opening Brain Lair. And she's made it her mission to provide books that uplift, inspire, entertain, and empower. Head to BrainLairBooks.com and pick up some of my recent favorites, including School Trip by Jerry Craft and Salito by Javier Zamora. Or get your hands on Kerry Washington's just-released memoir, Thicker Than Water, at BrainLairBooks.com. Use the promo code Kwame, K-W-A-M-E to receive 10% off your first order at Brain Lair Books, the official bookstore partner for the Why Fathers Cry podcast. I gotta know, you know, we, t- we often talk about how the origins of our, our lives, our work, who we are becoming, you know, that starts as children. So tell me the origins of your your love of of food, of sustainability, of 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 art, of creativity. What are the origins of your creativity? Did that happen, you know, in your home? It'll. I'll start with my maternal grandmother, Margie Bryant. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when you were talking about how your grandmother used to cook, um, you know, Sunday supper. Uh, every weekend. My, my grandmother did too. You know, she grew up in the rural South and migrated to Memphis in her teens and brought that kind of spirit of being on the farm and, you know, cooking things from scratch. And so it's funny because when I first started doing food justice work and moving into this field, learning about the the slow food movement. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It kind of came out of, it came out of Italy. Uh, Carlo Petrini was this far leftist activist who was really just pissed off and pushing back against, I think McDonald's was about to open in Rome. And mm-hmm. he was like, no, 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 no. This is Roman cooking. Like we have like these deep culinary traditions. We can't like, you know, these multinational food corporations encroach on, you know, what we've built. And so they started ho- holding protests there. So anyway, this idea of slow cooking, you know, you know, making meals from scratch, even cooking and eating locally and seasonally and sustainably. And when people hear that, they associate it with like Western Europe and Italy and Carlo Petrini. And I'm here for it. He's one of my heroes. But it's also black folks. Look, I would say when my grandmother (laughs) was in the kitchen cooking all day Saturday for Sunday supper, that's slow food. So don't erase these traditions that black folks and other folks of color have had where they engage and connect with food in, in, in that way. So, and the the chicken coop was in her backyard and, and, and the garden in the backyard with the snap greens and, and all the vegetables, like it was, it was farm to table. Farm to table, like at its finest, you know, like I always say that when I grow up, when I was growing up, we would eat as, um, you know, as local as our backyard. We always ate in season and literally would harvest food right from the kitchen garden before we um, ate. But 
you know, anyway, all that to say is that um, my love for cooking came from spending time with my maternal grandmother in her kitchen. And, you know, she would like starting as a young person, she would give me age appropriate tasks from like just washing the greens in the sink or, you know, turning the the lids and the uh, on her um, pickles and preserves that she would be making and to put up in her pantry from all the, the bounty and surplus from like the summer months. Hmm. But in terms of my kind of like overall artistic inclinations, right? Um, I would say my maternal grandfather, Eddie Bryan. Her husband, Marge's her husband? husband. Okay. Yep. Edward Bryant, um, who started a traveling gospel quartet in the 50s called Eddie Bryant and the Four Stars of Harmony. They were one of the um, first groups to play. Um, I think they were the first uh, group, got black gospel group to play on Memphis radio. Um, and he was a brilliant singer and, and band leader. And all of you know, my mom's siblings, and including my mom, are brilliant singers. And so growing up in that family, whenever we would have gatherings, there was like food, singing, art, culture, community, like all these things were inseparable. And so when you think about the architecture of my cookbooks, like like I have recipes, but I also have the suggested soundtracks and the playlists and I suggest books and I have, you know, artwork and all these things. And really, it's just me trying to mirror what I grew up around and pushing back against our industrialized food system that has created food as this commodity on one side and all the things that have been so integrated and so central to the way that we've grown food, cooked it and eaten it historically, community, art, culture, singing, you know, family. It's really um, pushing back against that separation and saying that we have to ensure that these things are um, inseparable because that's just, once again, that's, that's how we be, that's, just being a human. That's how we've yeah. always done things. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so what that makes me think of is that the food was always amazing. It was great. She put her foot in it, as it were. It was sustenance for us. But really, Brian, wasn't this just about the stories? Wasn't this about breaking bread? Wasn't this about a coming together of a community? This thread that's running through this conversation. The food was the food, but it was about what the food brought and it brought us together. Yep. There was this gathering, this thing called, oh, I won't say the name of it, but it's this thing in the Bay Area where they have these like biweekly gatherings where you have strangers come together and then people are making food together, um, you know, from cookbooks that are pre-selected. And so when I, and I'm, I'm coming in with my chef, I like, oh my God, like, they're not doing that technically correct or they're just, what's going on? You know, wanting to intervene, but just keeping right. it in. And what I found is that the food is always amazing. It's always delicious. And what it made me realize is that it's so much more than just some technical approach to making the food. I really think that it's just that energy and that the vibes and the love that somehow just make everything, the vibes, the energy, the connection, and the food taste delicious. I think these type of family and communal gatherings, there's so much more than the food. It's synergistic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It is. When I think about the origins of us as fathers and what we've been able to glean from our past and how and how we father and how we parent. For me, I say I love you every day to this child. She's 14, six feet tall, ninth grader. I say I love you. I love you. I say I must say it nine, ten times. And I know I say it because 
My dad never said it. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't that guy who said it. I knew he loved me, but he he didn't say it. I know that, you know, when I when I decided I wanted to be a poet, and my father was a book publisher. That was one of his major gigs. What? Yeah, he was a book publisher. That's where I learned it, Brian. I had no idea. Yo, I learned it as a kid. Damn. And so naturally, after graduating Virginia Tech and studying with Nikki Giovanni, I'm like, Dad, I'm going to be a poet. You're going to publish my first book. And my dad said, no, I think you're wasting your time. There's no money in poetry. And so we had a big sort of falling out around that. I was like, this is this is what I'm going to do. He ended up giving me a, a check for $1,700 to help me print my first book. He ain't published it. I had to start my own company. And he tells me to this point that, yeah, I told you that you couldn't do this and it wasn't going to work to see if you really wanted it. Ooh. To see if you were, yeah. He said, but, you know, but at the time it was like, what's, what's up with that? What's up? You, you ain't supporting your son. So we had a lot of falling out around just sort of my career path at least from my vision, my perspective. And of course, after I won this pretty big award, it's called the Newberry Medal. I, I broke through this wall and, and I saw the pride in his face and we must talk every day for like a half an hour. And that was 2015. Mm. So a big shift. And I wonder, is there a time in your life with your father that was momentous, that was transformative, that did something of the like for you. It's so deep that you say that because in terms of the arc of my career and life, you know, before I started working on food issues, I was actually a doctoral student in history at NYU um, studying with this brilliant historian, Robin D.G. Kelly. Robin D.G. Kelly. Yes. um, You know, I thought I wanted to be a professor. All that to say is, you know, I was doing research on radical movements of the 60s and 70s in grad school, learned about the Black Panther or more about the Black Panthers. I knew about them, uh, but obviously, but learned more about their, um, you know, grocery giveaways and their free breakfast for children program and really was like, this work is still relevant. I want to do this work um, to help create more healthy and just and sustainable food systems. So when I told my parents, you can imagine they were like, whoa, 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 wait. So we, 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 we've spent like, you know, we've sent you to private school for 12 years, you know, sent you to college, you're in a PhD program and you're going to culinary school because in their mind, they understand the historical way in which black people have played the role of domestic workers. In fact, Margie, oh. my maternal grandmother, was a domestic worker for wealthy white folks in Memphis. Um, you know, Mine too. Right. And so it was hard for them. They were just, they didn't get it. They didn't see it. And I had this clear vision like laid out. I want to start this organization. I don't want to help young people be leaders in their communities. But it was really hard for them to um, understand the vision that I had. And so I just want to say that, one, there was this moment thinking about your dad um, and him like giving you the money and telling you like, no. I remember my dad, when I got my first uh, cookbook deal, my dad said, you know, I'm proud of you. Um, it's all good. I'm glad, you know, Penguin, that's a reputable publisher, but I want you to keep one thing in mind, Master P. And this was that Master P, you know, kind of like when he was seen as this brilliant entrepreneur. Oh, like, Master P, the rapper who started Master No Limit P Records. Rapper, started No Limit, right. Selling, <laughs> sell, selling records out of his trunks. <laughs> oh, word. So, 
you know, he was really just encouraging me to think about how I could have ownership of my own work and not mm. just partner with big corporations to publish my work. So, but in a similar way, you know what it was when my parents started, when I started to get the accolades, when I got the James Beard Award, when, you know, I was getting like these major press, that's when it it, it landed and, and it hit in a different way and they could like see the vision. But the funny thing is, one, I am making the shift into the contemporary art space. I'm starting an MFA program at um, UC Berkeley in the fall in art. And when I told my parents about it, like, I know that they don't get what I'm doing. They're kind of like, well, you, you know, you, I know you do collages and you paint with your wife, but like, what, what, what are you going to be doing? So they're not really clear about this vision that I have about my artistic life, but they're so supportive. And I think that process of what we went through when I left grad school and went to culinary school, I think that was just a lesson for them that when our son has a vision, the Aquarius that he is, Mm -hmm. it might be wild. It might be like something that we can't even grasp or understand, but we trust him. And because of the way that they're showing up for me now and have always showed up, you know, I get it. I don't judge them for being like, why the hell are you leaving the PhD program to go to culinary school? (laughs) But it just makes me um, understand that I have to be that way for my girls. Like they are in this moment where so many things are shifting, new technologies emerging, like the world is transforming. And so they might have some visions about how their, their life um, or how they imagine their life unfolding that I might not get it all because I'm an old dude and, you know, I just don't know what they know. But I am very clear that because of what my parents have modeled for me and especially my dad being my hero, I'm just like, whenever they come to me with something, I'm like, yep, let's do it. You got it. I'm following your lead. So I'm really thankful for my parents being in that space where, you know, even to this day, they may not totally get what I'm doing, but are just like immensely supportive without any reservations. And I want to be that. That's deep. That's deep. Was there ever a point where, and I'm probably projecting, because, you know, we I, I, let me just ask it. As it was there ever a point where he, your dad wasn't your hero. Like there was a there was a, just a clash. We had beef in high school. We had beef in high school, even going into college when I um, decided that Catholicism wasn't the spiritual vehicle that I wanted to embrace because my parents are strong. My parents are staunch Catholics because my grandmother was a staunch Catholic. And so my, my dad's mom, you know, my, my grandfather, mm-hmm. he was Baptist, um, which was a whole thing. Cause my dad was spending church. He was in mass and like Baptist church. He just spent the whole day. Bible school, day. all of it. <laughs> yep. But, you know, being the Aquarian, I am being the kind of like person who challenges authority and what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I really understood that, this re- one, that religion traumatized me as a child, which I can get into at some other point. But right. also just understanding that this wasn't the, the the spiritual vehicle for me. And so when I decided to step away, it really, it crushed my dad because that is his heart and soul. He's like so committed to that faith. And, you know, I didn't even realize how much it hurt him until my uncle Leroy, his best friend, told me one day, like, your dad, this is tearing him apart. You know, it's really tearing them apart that you are stepping away from Catholicism. And we had been like going back and forth around this up until like two years ago. Like, I'll be 50 soon. And like, we still have had tension around this. And what really helped 
to quell the drama, the tension is me understanding that trying to historicize the atrocities that the Catholic Church has been a part of, trying to intellectualize how problematic that institution has been, that wasn't a way to, to, to get to this. In fact, if I did convince him that this has been such a horrible religious institution historically and, and even contemporarily for so many reasons, and he left, it would almost be like his whole life was a lie. And I thought about it and I was like, I don't want to be the one that helps him come to that conclusion. He's just like, what the hell? But what helped him to have compassion for me and what helped me move out of my head and get into the my heart space and connect with him in a different way is just being real about how it traumatized me and hurt me. And he couldn't argue against that. There was nothing he could do but like, one, say, I'm sorry that this religion, this institution has done that to you. And then two, that's it. That's all I needed to hear. Say less. And now that we've gotten over that hump, we're better than ever. That's a blessing. Yeah. That's a blessing. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. good that you, you know, you had those lines of communication open that you could talk through this, that you could work your way through it. Do you, you do the same thing with your daughters? Y'all talk a lot. You got an open line. Like, how does that work? I am working to continue to cultivate that. Dig it. With my youngest daughter, we have like the most open and just like loving and like we talk about everything. And part of the reason is, is because she's really like me. Like she's like such a like deeply spiritual person and we call her old soul. And so we speak the same language and it's easy for her, for us to kind of connect in that way. Whereas my um, oldest daughter, she's much more like her um, maternal grandfather. She's an intellectual. She is, she questions everything. She pushes back against everything. And as a father, I am so glad that she has that when she's an adult, when she's out in the lab, I'm like, this is how I want you to be out in the world. But right. in the house, I'm like, why are you going to push back on everything? Why are you why right. do I have to, like, substantiate, right. justify, and get peer-reviewed studies on every single Yo. thing that I'm trying to help convince you of? Exactly. <laughs> and I, I realized that how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so if I don't support and cultivate that at home, then how do I expect that she's going to continue to be like the kind of, you know, whatever, the radical person that she is, just just like, no, I'm not going for the okie doke. Like, you got to show me. You just can't tell me something. So I'm working on it and I'm working on getting over my need to just like have her kind of like easily accept whatever I um, present to her because I know it's right. (laughs) I know it's right. (laughs) Oh, you always right. We always right. You know, this is who she is and I have to accept her for that and meet her where she is and love her unconditionally and figure out ways that we can communicate even when it's tough. You know, I can't expect my my relationship in the way that I communicate with Zinzi, our eight-year-old, to be the same with Mila, our 11-year-old, because they're just different. So I'm working. I'm working. Got it. Got it. Man, this is. Bro, I take it that your daughter has a similar kind of lag, bro. Bro, she pushes back on it. Why? Why? <laughs> One day she said, "Why are you mansplaining?" I mean, she's breaking it down like non. It's constant pushback on everything, and her mother and I are like, "Is this going to? We feel like this is going to serve her out in the world, you know?" But it, like you said, at home, nah, just do what we say. <laughs> 
You all have the power over. I mean, it's so much, but you know, it's all good. We, we learning, we, we are not grown men. We're growing men and we're learning how to, you know, interact and engage with our daughters. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, this conversation was so enlightening. I feel like I learned a great deal just, you know, in terms of community and how important that is. You know, we talked about breaking bread and, and, and the power of, of, of community in, in those food circles with, with our family and with our friends. And I'm just so grateful that you had, you know, you took the time to, to talk with me today. Chef Bryant, <laughs> I want to get it. I want I want to get it right. Um, soon, soon to be um, in the MFA program um, at Berkeley. And is it called practical art? What did you, practice art. Oh, art practice. Art practice. Okay. Yep. I got it backwards. Art practice. Mm -hmm. This is, I appreciate you being in my, in my village, in my community. Brian Terry, thank you so much. It was, it was good to talk to you, brother. Thank you. I needed this conversation. I needed this conversation today. Yeah. Appreciate you. You as well. This is Why Fathers Cry, the podcast. I'm Kwame Alexander. Until next time. Why Fathers Cry is a Big C Entertainment production. Hosted by Kwame Alexander. Produced by Sarah Grace McCandless. Studio audio engineering by Edgar Diaz. Post-production by Jeremy Brisky at Burst Marketing. Theme music, St. State Street. Composed by Joshua Gabriel and Bryant Terry. Learn more at whyfatherscry.com. Special thanks to our guests, our sponsors, and to you for listening wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you.